my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. That we can, and so help us God, we will make America great again. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the No Gimmicks Podcast. I'm your humble host, as always, Brady Leonard. Hopefully you guys are having a fantastic week. Um, great show for you today. I was joined by the great Brian Nichols, host of the Brian Nichols Show over on the We Are Libertarians Podcast Network. Uh, Brian and I had a great chat. I, I think you guys will really enjoy it. Um, we, we recorded this last night, Tuesday night, so it's not... Uh, yeah, we're not doing play-by-play of the inauguration or, or whatever. Not that I don't think you guys would really want to hear that anyway. What am I supposed to say? Joe Biden's president now? Like that, That'd be a... He hasn't done anything yet. Not not a lot to talk about. So um, that, w- that would have been an extraordinarily boring show. So I'm not going to put you guys through that. Uh, me and Brian, uh, we had a great chat, though. We talked about the liberty movement uh, and the future of the liberty movement uh, and, and how that applies to the Republican Party, the Libertarian Party. And, and we discussed a lot. I think you guys will really enjoy it. Uh, before I get to Brian, guys, please follow us on Twitter at NoGimmicksPod. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and, guys, if you are on iTunes, please give us a five-star rating and a good review. I'd really appreciate it. And if you like what you're hearing and want to get involved with the show, you can support us monthly over on Patreon, patreon.com slash the No Gimmicks Podcast. All right. Without further ado, the great Brian Nichols. All right, guys, we're here with Brian Nichols, host of the Brian Nichols Show. Brian, my brother, how you doing? Brady Leonard, my friend, I'm doing quite well. Thank you for so Number one, thank you for having me on the show. Number one, number two, thank you so much for uh, all the work you're doing, uh, spreading the message of liberty. We're getting this uh, stuff into action, and it starts with what we're doing here, having this conversation. Absolutely, and back at you, man. And, and just a little peek behind the curtain here for uh, the audience. Brian and I, we, we've been texting back and forth for like a couple years at this point, <laughs> trying, trying to make these podcasts happen, me on your show, you on my show, and like one of us will forget, like we'll book a show and something will happen. We'll have to cancel. And it's just, it's been wild. Like, I don't think I've actually struggled to book a guest that actually wanted to do the show <laughs> this much ever before. So thanks for actually uh, making the time, this time to do it, man. And I'm sure I, I can return the favor uh, in the near future. For sure. And you know, one of the, the, the crazy things about this past year, especially in the era of COVID is that a lot of us still have our, our normal lives that we're living. So, you know, you, you take, your normal life, and then you add in all the crazy things that the government's doing, and it's like, well, my goodness, we have to commentate on that as well. Plus, you're trying to live. Plus, you're trying to, you know, do your day jobs. Plus, you know, any side hustle. And it's like, oh, all of a sudden, this uh, this life thing, you blink, and you know what was supposed to be 15 days to slow the spread, all of a sudden turns into what feels like 15 months. And you know, fast forward, and we're already almost a year, uh, you know, removed. And it's amazing how fast a year can really go. And I think. A lot of people are starting to wake up, man, realize, like, we just lost an entire year of productivity, of education, of rehabilitation. Whatever it is people were going through in their lives where this big, gigantic pause button was placed on us, a lot of people are starting to uh, to wake up and realize this this is going to be hurting us for a long time. And, you know, it, it starts with you know, looking at just being able to engage in normal things like us getting on a podcast. It's like, oh, you know. My schedule got re- rearranged four times because, you know, I had to do different things with work or, you know, your your schedule got changed with, with things happening in you know your home life or whatever. Like we, we all had all of a sudden this big, gigantic change in our lives. And you know what the, the messed up part is, man, this is, this is what drives me crazy. And what I've been hearing from folks in the show, especially over my network, is a lot of this people are realizing now could have been entirely avoided if the government had just got out of the way. And, and that's I think the saddest part is folks were like, it didn't have to be this way. And actually, to the contrary, not only did it not have to be this way, it actually would have been the exact opposite. Where things would have been in, in infinitely better from not only just an economic standpoint, but a quality of life standpoint. We would have probably been around the same number of total COVID deaths, but we wouldn't have seen a complete crash in our economy. We wouldn't have seen you know millions of people who were deemed unessential employees now facing unemployment and and you know trying to just make it by. And and I think. Right now, we as, as folks in the greater liberty movement have a, a great opportunity to uh, to reach people in ways that we never would have been able otherwise. So I say all that to say, yes, I've been wanting to be on your show because, <laughs> because man, this is a conversation that we we definitely need to be having. Yeah, you're, you're 100% right. And maybe it's just me being the eternal optimist, but I think through uh, this, this, you know, this tragic 
past year we've had with with the pandemic and everything else and the government shutdowns and, and everything I, I i do think that you know we in the liberty movement may have a, a golden opportunity here and i think we'll probably get this get to this later in the show um now that people are actually admitting that lockdowns don't work and it, we basically just put entire country out of work for absolutely no reason and all that i think you know it, coming up this year it could be our time to shine <laughs> you know i think a lot of people might be more willing to listen to us than they otherwise would be well, not only should it be our time to shine, I mean, it's our responsibility, I think, 100%. at this point, because you look at it, right, Brady? When you look at the, the, the left and the right, traditionally, we've seen in America the pendulum swing from the left to the right. You know, every four, eight, ten years or so, you'll, you'll see it inevitably swing back and forth. But it pretty stay, much stays in this, this left-right paradigm. And I think a lot of folks, to what we were just speaking to earlier, are starting to realize this left-right paradigm, this this pendulum that's been swinging back and forth for 200-plus years now, maybe it's not exactly the best way to govern society. And actually, to the contrary, maybe we actually start to look at some other alternatives out there beyond this duopoly we've been focusing on now for pretty much our entire American history and start to focus on alternative means of not just you know voting but also looking at the different parties that are out there. And you know, I, I say all that. I'm having a debate over my show. Um, not really a debate. It's more of a roundtable discussing ranked choice voting versus that of approval voting with um, Aaron Hamlin for the Center for Election Science and Kyle Bailey up from uh, Maine, actually uh, helping Maine get their ranked choice voting proposals into action. So discussing the differences that we can vote to change how the systems are, but also you know, how we can reach people. And um, I say that because right now people are looking again to different ways of doing things, looking to you know, learn, say, well, this is how we've always done things. What, what's, what's the alternative? What's, what's different that we can do that will yield a different result? And it's on us to not scare them away by telling them that they're not libertarian enough to even have a conversation with us, but rather to say, hey, listen, you're asking the right questions because you're identifying the similar problems that we're identifying. And, and you know, the, the, the problem is the solutions that have been presented far too often from the left and the right have only exacerbated the problems. Uh, and we really need to have a fundamental change in the way that we're addressing these problems. And instead of trying to slap Band-Aid solutions onto these you know, very, very large and in, in many cases institutional problems, we, we really need to have you know, these very tough, difficult conversations where it requires us to, to sit down with one another and and actually talk about the, the things that we disagree with. And this is one thing you know, I saw a meme the other day that made, made me kind of chuckle because it's so sad because it's true that we, we've seen an entire generation where we've been told not to talk about the things that make us feel uncomfortable because you just kind of want to go along to get along. You don't want to ruffle the feathers. You just right. want to kind of go with the status quo. And yet that has led to a society where we know so little about what the other side, air quote, thinks. And, and we actually think we think they think the exact opposite. In many cases, we build up in our heads what the, the straw man argument is, and it becomes the reality. It becomes what we actually believe they believe. And it's sad if you would go to ask somebody, it was a libertarian belief. What's a conservative belief? What's a, what's a leftist belief? They'll probably give you the caricature version. But to actually ask that person, what do you believe? You're going to find out that they actually identify a lot of the same problems that we see every single day and where we need to get better at. And I'm saying this as folks in the greater liberty movement is look for areas of empathy where we can start to meet people right on that one-on-one -on -one basis. And with, with us meeting them on that one-on-one -on -one level and talking about those issues that they, that really mattered to them, we can become that trusted advisor, right? We can become that person that they come to and start to ask questions beyond the traditional questions that, you know, you, maybe you'd ask about politics or more philosophical questions, right? Digging beyond the conservative and, and liberal, you know, talking points. And let's actually get to the meat of these uh, these issues, the root of a lot of these problems. And I think what we're going to find and we are starting to find is at the root of all these problems tends to be the, the state and the state has been time and again when I talk to folks from the left and the right. It tends to be the bad guy. I mean, I just had it at my show, Ermaya Fanayan. Ermaya is the head of uh, the SLC Pink Pistols out in Utah. Started out on the March for Our Lives organization. Um, after oh, wow. seeing, yes, it, dude, this is wild, right? She she leads um, Pink Pistols for LGBTQ rights, and with that, she completely changed her entire view on gun control because she realized that her, it, her you know, her is, is a transgendered person, and also those in the transgender community were not being protected by government. 
And my goodness, you know, she said we need to be able to defend ourselves. And that's something that we can build a common ground with in terms of building principles going forward, because we're already acknowledging the same problem. States dropping the ball, the state, and actually in many cases is actually facilitating the, the problems. So if we're acknowledging that and we're coming to that agreement, then we can start to, you know, plant the seeds of, hey, well, look at the other areas that we have, you know, government problems. And you know what's funny, Brady, this is the part that drove me crazy, is that Ermai is a, a devout leftist. And on my show explained why. And in my asking, you could hear that, you know, the questions of like, okay, well, if we're acknowledging the state has some problems in defending people, then why do you believe that the state's going to be able to, you know, put forth complete equality across the board? And you can see kind of, well, I really haven't been able to grapple with that question, but you know, here's the talking point. But it's something that definitely is gonna plant that seed of right, of right. that. Right. And and this is, I think, the end game. And I, I'll say, you know, this for a sales perspective, you're not going to get somebody to instantly be like, hey, you're right. Right. You, you just need to let them kind of percolate and have that kind of sit there on their own. And, then, you know, it's going to be two months later. They'll be at the dinner table and, you know, they'll be talking with their, their crazy uncle and he'll say something and they'll be like, you know, what that crazy libertarian say about that one thing that, you know, kind of made sense. I think they are right, and I'm seeing it applied in X position that we're talking about or X circumstance here, and that's where we're going to have the most success. You're not going to see that tree grow overnight. It takes time, and uh, you know, with that, we actually have to be willing to uh, to let it take the time. But at the same point in time, right, we can't be uh, just like going back to that tree and watering it every single day and expecting it to grow because otherwise we're going to uh, completely drown it, and we see that, right? Libertarians saying, read this book, read, read this book, and, and here, read another book. That's not how you convert people over to libertarianism. You convert them over by telling stories, finding common ground, being a problem solver. And then once you become that problem solver, start to solve uh, the, the issues in their life and, and create value. Right. And that's where as a party, you know, we've really dropped the ball. Yeah. I mean, look, that's a lot to break down. And I want to get to. No, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. You're good, man. You're, you're, you're good. And that's all great stuff. And I want to get to every single one of those points you made. And actually, later on in the show, I want to talk about, you know, areas we can we can take you know get on the offensive i feel like we're playing defense too often and and i actually think gun rights is is one of the uh, areas that we can make some serious wins whether it's you know talking to the lgbtq community talking to the african-american community um you know uh, making the case that you know nonviolent convicted felons should have their gun rights restored stuff like that i think we could actually make some serious inroads uh on the gun front um and I, I mean, I agree with everything you just said, but there's plenty of time to agree uh, later on in the show. I actually want to start <laughs> on probably the only thing either of us will say on the show today that we disagree with. Um, and, and that's the million dollar question that a lot of people have been debating. And obviously, this is not a debate show. We're just having we're just a couple dudes having a having a conversation. But uh, a lot of people are debating this and, and people will continue to, obviously. And, and that's the million dollar question. Should libertarians join the LP or should they uh, join the Republican Party and attempt to transform the GOP from the inside out? And I, personally, I, I firmly am on the libertarians join the GOP side. You know, I'm, I'm a registered Republican. I'm actually a former elected Republican, you know, and I'm also a, a pretty radical libertarian. So I, I think this is probably the only the only case that I, I'm, I, I'm guessing you're going to disagree with me here. I, you know, believe it or not, Brady, uh, I don't actually disagree um so much as i look at it as it has to be a tactical approach right right so for example let's look at uh kentucky right great state of kentucky where we have one of the best members of congress and one congressional representative thomas massey 100%. in the house right yep so if we were in thomas massey's district i would absolutely discourage any big l libertarian from running in that office. Why? Because what are you doing? We're talking about, uh, you know, in political science, there's an idea of what's called strategic voting, right? And in strategic voting, there's two things you're looking for and what you're measuring. Number one is the value you will get as the voter in the feeling of voting for the candidate that you most want. The other thing you're looking for is the actual outcome, right? The, in terms of policy from the candidate that actually wins. And you can assign a numerical value to that and based on you know what policies are the most important to you and where those candidates stand. And I think you would find, by and large, folks in the liberty movement would look at somebody like a Thomas Massey and they would probably be on, on board 90 plus percent of what Thomas Massey has to bring to the table. Now, 
yes, we could get a candidate that's 95 percent, you know, in in camp or or even 99 percent in camp with libertarian ideas. But then you look at what's the alternative and you might have a candidate that gives you 20 percent. Now, if you were to look at the the net difference between, you know, Thomas Massey at 90 percent and that candidate at 20 percent, but you're going to have a 70 percent more of a positive with having Thomas Massey in office than otherwise. And we start to look at instead of, you know, Thomas Massey versus the alternative, which, I, again, I hate the lesser of two evils argument because they say, well, you still vote for the GOP. You're still voting for the lesser of two evils. I say real, okay, real quick. I, I, I'm fine. It, it's weird. It, and uh, I, I'm fine with that argument. I'm fine with I mean, the lesser yeah. of two evils. I mean, like, I look, I just I think, in essence, the state is evil. Um, government itself, not great. Um, so I don't know. I, I've never voted once in my life where I wasn't looking at it in a lesser two evils kind of context. You know, like I, you know, even before my libertarian days, it's not like when I was just like a mainstream, you know, Republican. Like, it's not like I looked at any Republican candidate I voted for. and was like, oh, yeah, I'm just stoked about this guy. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I, yeah. I think we're always going to be dealing with the lesser two evils argument. And I don't necessarily think at least as it sits right now that that's a, a bad thing that, that somebody would make a decision like that. Which is what I say to the libertarians. Well, all right, if that's going to be the case, a lot of Americans out there are in the lesser of two evils camp. Then let's pick the actual lesser of two evils argument where it actually applies. So I look at states where, you know, Shane Hazel, I think he played a great role as a spoiler in a state like Georgia between the lesser of two evils, which quite literally are within what five percentage difference points in actual philosophies. And that's something that you are going to see more of. And I think the role for libertarians is going to be number well, two, twofold. Number one, from a national perspective, to keep the other two major parties in line in terms of the specific areas where libertarians can pull away from their base. So, for example, if you're talking to folks on the left, you're probably going to look at more civil liberties, um, you know, war, uh, war on drugs, ending the war and terror, so on and so forth, and, in, in, you know, ending overseas interventions. And then on the right, you know, you're going to talk more about your your fiscal policies, you know, focusing more on your traditional, um, you know, fiscal conservative or, you know, your Rothbardian economics, Aust- Austrian economics, um, you know, even Chicago economics, right? right. That's where you're going to, to to force the issue there. Now, you look at, you know, representatives like Dave Perview, Purdue and, and Kelly Loeffler, if you were to look at them from a true strategic voting perspective versus their Democratic candidates, Unfortunately, when you're looking at that policy one, right, and that's the the one that's the, the the sticky one because that's the one you can actually refer to actual voting and the ramifications of said voting from policy versus just that kind of intrinsic feel good that you get when you vote. So in this kind of case, right, you look at the Kelly Loeffler who maybe she was at 40% of the Libertarian positive, uh, you know, the positive win for the Libertarian to vote, and then the, the Democratic candidate maybe gives them 35%. So you now you're only fiddling with around 10% of difference in terms of what your your percentage points would yeah, be. Yeah, I may push back on those percentages a little bit. If you're looking at a in a vowed marxist <laughs> in a Raphael Warnock uh, who's going to who's the new democratic senator from Georgia. I think uh, you know I, I don't think it's that co- I mean I, I understand what you mean. I'm not I'm not praising Kelly Leffler by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it's I think the gap in terms of their liberty score is is a little bit more dramatic. Well, yeah, no. Well, that, that's why it goes in, in in two two parts, right? So then it goes to the other part, and that's the first part. What do you get as the, the voter from that intrinsic that that one value that aspect? It's hard to actually put a uh, a finite number on. And as a sales guy, you know, a sales executive, I'm looking for KPIs that I can effectively measure. And unfortunately, you can't really effectively measure that value that your average voter is going to bring into the the voting booth with that feeling, right? And we see that with Trump. You know, Trump. Would have that feeling of a lot of people. They just vote for him because he was Trump, for better or for worse. Right, right. And it was hard to to put that number on on that. So, what I would say is, to your point, right, you're right that you you would probably wouldn't want the avowed Marxist over a Kelly Loeffler. But now to the libertarian point, well, now in Georgia, if you're running a candidate again, well, you know what? Maybe you should make sure that the candidate doesn't suck. Maybe the candidate should actually instead of just talking you know, about the the ideas of, you know, the free markets or the ideas of civil liberties or whatever it may be, right? Instead of just talking about those, now you actually need to get a candidate who's going to to actually stand up for those values and fight for them. And we see this, and I, I, I bring this up because I was part of the 2010 
you know, Tea Party uh, movement back with the GOP. And right. I worked on many campaigns, both from a, a state level as well as a, a federal level. And, and with that, you see a lot of candidates who ran in 2010, 2012, and 2014 on the Tea Party wave of this, you know, basically it was a constitutionalist, libertarian, small L libertarian movement. Right. And you ended up seeing what folks like, you know, Marco Rubio, of all people, run as a libertarian. I mean, my goodness, man, I have in my my office here, I have a Marco Rubio water bottle and it says stay thirsty for liberty. And he signed on it. And I laugh because. Oh, no. Right. But he ran on this whole idea of liberty. So it's easy for the lip service. It then it comes down to actually, you know, make holding those candidates accountable. So to your point, right. Is the GOP the most feasible means on a national level to to get liberty into action? Absolutely. I will not at all disagree with that. But there is a role for the LP. And then the LP's role, I'd say, is to hold those parties accountable. And if we're talking, and again, this is federal level, right? When we break it down to a more state perspective or even a local perspective, I'd say your LP has more of a role, especially in like nonpartisan elections. Goodness, right. if you're a libertarian and you you know you have a, a nice construction company and you're a well thought of person in your community, and it's a nonpartisan run for mayor, run, run yeah. for mayor, city council, then, judge. If you're a lawyer, exactly. if you're a libertarian leaning lawyer, that wants to make then, a difference, they'll say, "What do you what what are your what's your registered position again?" And you'll say a libertarian. They'll say a what? And then that gives you a chance to again show, "Hey, listen, I was this weird thing you'd never heard of." But you knew me. You knew my, you know, my values as a member of the community and as a business owner and as a, a thought leader. And and now you are seeing the positive ramifications of a libertarian policy, right? And that's where we're going to be able to win, man. That's it's building those those stories, building that resume of, of libertarian success stories because we always get picked on, right? Go to Somalia. Where's your libertarian country, <laughs> right? It, it, let's be real. They kind of have a point. I mean, I, I don't mean to pick on them, but. Justin Amash had somebody on Twitter, uh, and they said, name a libertarian country. And he said, the United States of America. And I said, well, that that doesn't seem like it's too much of a, a glowing endorsement when you look at where we are right now in 2021. Right. Um, because we're, you know, how many trillions of dollars in debt, and we're on the precipice of losing our, our liberties overnight. So, yeah, man, I, I think we we do have a chance to to reach people. I think the Libertarian Party does have a chance to reach people. Um, but it's not exclusively through you know one channel or the other. I think it has to be a very calculated, multi-pronged effort to uh, to make sure we're not wasting our time, we're not wasting our energy, and and really make sure we're focusing on where we can actually put liberty into action and make liberty win. Hundred percent. And and actually, that warms my heart to hear you say that. I, I thought you give me a little bit more pushback on my <laughs> assessment than you did. So I appreciate that. But you know, and maybe it's just that. Uh, you know, I am an Ohioan. I'm a lifelong Ohioan, and uh, you know they they call us the bellwether state uh, for a reason. Actually, this this year or last year, 2020 is the only uh, presidential election since I believe the 1880s where Ohio did not uh, uh, vote for the the president elect, which is pretty wild. Wow. Um, but it's like to the the extreme anti GOP libertarian. I, look, I, I get the biggest argument against. The GOP is that the GOP is terrible, and that, that GOP politicians are terrible, um, and that's correct. I mean, I'm not I'm not arguing with that at all. Uh, but you know, you can't ignore like recent history. I mean, I, I personally I can't get the fact I can't get past the fact that Ron Paul, a Republican congressman from Texas, converted more people to libertarianism, or at least to the liberty movement, even if a lot of those folks never identified as a, as a libertarian themselves. Um, but and he liber- converted more people into the liberty movement than every. Libertarian Party candidate for office ever combined, right? Well, you know, you know, Ron, Ron Paul. You know, they hate him for that. They, they yeah, hate him for that, right? They hate him for that. And but the the fact is, he could never have done any of that without the GOP's infrastructure. I mean, Ron Paul got millions of votes in Republican primaries. He won, I believe, in 2012. He got, he was the leading delegate holder from four different states, I believe, in the 2012 primaries. I mean, this is a guy at the age of you know 75 or so at the time. I mean, he had millions of Republicans talking about ending the Federal Federal Reserve and ending the wars and, and balancing the budget. And that just wouldn't have been possible if, if he were still a member of the LP. You know what I mean? Yep. Like if, if Ron Paul hadn't made the decision to join the GOP, where would the liberty movement be right now? How about Rand Paul? 
you know, mm-hmm. your, your senator in Kentucky. I mean, Donald Trump, you know, Republicans like to brag, and rightfully so, that Donald Trump is the first president uh, in God knows how long not to start a new war. I, I think a lot of that is because Rand Paul, while being an influential senator, is also golf buddies with the president. <laughs> right? right. Like, if he were just some LP member who's some libertarian physician from Kentucky, there's no shame in that, obviously. But if he were just that, we, we may be at war with Iran right now, and honestly, I think we probably would. And like Mike Lee, not only is Mike Lee a terrific senator, in my opinion, he's on the short list for the Supreme Court, right? What? He was on Donald Trump's short list the past two nominations. Obviously, uh, he chose Amy Coney Barrett, who I think will be pretty good, and, and Brett Kavanaugh, jury's still out on Brett Kavanaugh, not so optimistic, uh, liberty-wise, on, on old Brett. But, you know, it's still possible that Mike Lee— could end up on the Supreme Court for 25 or 30 years eventually, depending on when the next Republican is elected president. And if he didn't join the GOP, if he was just some awesome libertarian lawyer from Utah, which no shame in that, I mean, he'd still be a badass, don't get me wrong. But if he were just some libertarian lawyer, member of the LP from Utah that none of us had ever heard of, that's the difference in in scope between the LP and the GOP. You're talking a Supreme Court justice versus some random guy in Salt Lake City. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's I, I just want these people to join. I, I, you know, for guys like Mike Lee, Rand Paul, Ron Paul, their their career arc does not look the way it has. They they haven't they wouldn't be winning hearts and minds for liberty like they are without the Republican Party and the infrastructure that the Republican Party has built over the last 150 years. Well, what are you speaking to, right? And and here, I'll put my sales executive hat back on because I know everybody right. hates it. I mean, at the end of the day, everything is sales, right? You're either right. selling yourself, an idea, you 100%. know, a product. And, and here's the the reality, right? You're talking about value. You're talking about the fact that people look at the, the GOP as a means of value. Yes. And that value is a platform. The yes. value is that you're able to then get your ideas out to a, an audience that you otherwise probably wouldn't talk to and you wouldn't reach. And and here's the dirty little secret, Brady. This is what a lot of libertarians don't want people to know is that they don't want the, the movement to grow. They, they want it to stay this, you know, Puritan like movement where you have your, your core group of members who they've passed the, the religious fundamental testing and they are the, the, the purest and the best out there and they want to be the, you know, the, the kings and queens of being right. And, and that's great. You know, they, they have been for the longest time. And now they're realizing that if this thing does, in fact, grow and we do end up bringing more people into the movement, number one, you're going to see the movement overtly become less libertarian. That's going to happen. And the reason being is because when we first get people into the movement, they're not going to be libertarian. They're going to be asking questions and they need to be educated. And it's going to be on those, you know, those OG members, right, to, to be the folks who are going to be leading the, the charge and helping educate them along the way. And unfortunately, we've seen too often than not, you know, as Larry Sharp will bring in the, the folks as the recruiter, then you'll see the, the folks in the movement say, oh, these aren't libertarians, and then they'll send them back. <laughs> And and it's like, well, no kidding. I, I I didn't say they were. We need to convert them. So that that needs to be step one is knowing that we need to bring people in. But step number two is understanding that as we grow, you're going to have more people that traditionally you aren't going to agree with in the movement, and that's okay. When you look at the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, for that matter, they are parties of coalitions, right? A hundred percent. And you, yeah, like they look at the left, right? We had what twenty candidates on the left uh, on the Democratic stage for the the primaries here, and I mean you had folks like Tulsi Gabbard and Andrew Yang up there with folks like Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and then Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Now I would say all three of those kind of bubbles are very different in terms of the way that they would approach politics within the Democratic Party. But you know what? As libertarians, I could see a, a Tulsi and Andrew Yang coalition being much more likely to side with libertarians on certain issues than the likes of, you know, someone like a uh, uh, elitist, like, a, a you know, Elizabeth Warren or the, you know, the, the folks out there who are the oligarchs in the Joe Biden camp, right? They're not going to care so much about principle or, or, you know, what's right or wrong, but more so what keeps power. So that's why I say, you know, when we're looking at growing this, this greater liberty movement, we have to understand that as we bring people in, 
you're going to naturally see them go into coalitions, and that's okay. Those coalitions are fine, and you're going to see this kind of sway back and forth, and we see it in the big parties, right? You see a conservative takeover, then you see the neocon takeover, then you see the populist takeover, and it goes back and forth and back and forth. The GOP and the Democratic parties, they've been showing us that this happens in the Libertarian Party. We're learning it ourselves, whether it's the you know, the pragmatics or the, the, the Mises caucus, whoever it's going to be. Here's the reality. They have to be the party that's going to be leading, right, leading us towards some ultimate goal. And I think, Brady, here's the, the unfortunate reality, right? Libertarians too often confuse uh, leadership and, and power structures, right? So they look at somebody who is in a leadership role and they instantly have this reservation towards them because – they confuse a leader with somebody who has power and that power that could be used against them versus somebody who is trying to guide a collective group of people for you know this one common goal. And you know while we're not in a collective mindset, we are trying to get this one common goal. And this goal is individual liberty across the board. And and once we're able to uh, you know in Jason Stapleton's analogy, you know we're on this spaceship through space towards Liberty Land, right? And we're on this you know, spaceship together and we are so freaking far away that like for you to say like, hey, listen, I can't be on this, this spaceship to Liberty Land with these folks because they're too different from me. It's like, listen, you we're in the same church, just different pews, folks. hundred percent so similar. Right. Like it, we need to get out of our own heads. Just re- real quick, real quick, just because yeah. my, my audience is my audience is kind of split right down the middle, like conservatives and libertarians. So just I'm, for the inside baseball stuff, just to kind of. Just clarify real quick for uh, some of the people you might have lost just a second ago. The Mises Caucus is within the the Libertarian Party, and it's guys like Tom yeah. Woods, Dave Smith, uh, Eric July, guys like that's all, all guys who I really like a lot and respect a lot. Um, and they're they're trying to kind of transform the LP into you know uh, you know bring back some of the the founding Libertarian principles, the Mises and Hayek and Rothbard Rothbardian principles, um, and and some folks within the it's weird to call anybody in the Libertarian Party establishment, but I guess the LP establishment, I guess, would be the best way for a non-Libertarian to understand what's going on. They're kind of fighting, they're pushing back on that. Kind of picture Donald Trump versus Mitch McConnell or something like that, if you're just a Republican listening. But So, so that's kind of what Brian's talking about there. But in, but to talk about what, what you mentioned a second ago about just building coalitions— um, you're absolutely right, and it is all about building those coalitions. And obviously, we libertarians, we can't expect once we introduce somebody to the liberty movement for them to be on. I mean, they haven't, they didn't grow up reading Mises, man. Like they're they're not going to be there yet. But like, I I expand it way out. Like in, from where I'm sitting, looking at my country, anybody who wants the state less powerful than it is right now, less involved in their lives. That it is right now is my ally, and and honestly, yeah. my goal is to lose allies because that would mean that we're shrinking the state, right? <laughs> like, look, if you as as we sit right now with a, a president, well, I guess once this airs tomorrow, at one p.m., we'll have President Joe Biden, and we'll have a unified Democratic federal government, and that's that's terrifying. And obviously, the, even in Donald Trump's administration, I think he's added what seven trillion or something ridiculous like that to the debt. Uh, look, anybody who wants to shrink the state is my ally. And once I start losing allies for good, then that means we're on the right path. Because if we shrink the, the size and scope of the federal government by 20%, a lot of the Republicans are going to get off the bus. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're like, okay, well, we're comfortable with the size of the state right now, with, with the state's intervention in the economy right now. So we're, we're out. We're out of the liberty movement. And then once we shrink it 40%, maybe a lot of the conservatives will jump off the off board. You know what I mean? Uh, okay, we're comfortable. We're okay. And we'll just keep on shrinking the state from there. But it's like I'm looking at a giant federal government that is infringing on all of our individual liberties right now. So it's like we just – beggars can't be choosers, Brian. <laughs> and make no mistake, we are a drastic minority in the country right now We that, that view property rights and individual liberty as, as extraordinarily important. We are in a dramatic m- minority right now. And uh, we are in no place to, to cast anybody out unless they're like a truly a side note. Like if you're just like uncontrollably racist or anti-Semitic or something like that. Yeah. Get, get the heck out. But aside from that, you, you know what I mean? Yeah, and you know what? And this is the, the reality that there is nobody, I would say, in the, the greater libertarian movement who wants any of those people. And and this is the part that drives me crazy, is that you see like the, oh, well, you were dog whistling, or oh, you were implying. It's like, listen, if you are always searching 
for the worst of intentions in people, you are absolutely going to find them. And here's Can we stop what... using the term dog whistle? I mean, the whole point of a dog whistle is that people can't can't hear it. It's inaudible to the human ear. So, I mean, a lot of people are hearing a lot of dog whistles left and right, and that really that, that the term itself in its modern usage just never made any sense to me. Yeah, well, and the reason that they're looking for the the you know proverbial in this case dog whistle, right, is because as long as you're able to identify something that you can always have as like the reason to exclude in this case this other group, in in and this is the sad kind of mentality is that we have a lot of people who they kind of just want to be friends with, and we hear this expression right like the Beltway libertarian, right? You, the, right. the people who they have their friends in D.C. And that's fine. Like, you can be friends with people in D.C. who aren't libertarians, but, like, you you need to not just be friends. You also need to have principles and convictions. And while you have those differences, right, to actually, you know, when it, you know, rubber hits the road, to, to stand on those convictions, you know, it's one thing to, to be a libertarian when, you know, it's it's easy, right, on, on whatever the, the easy issue is of the day. But, you know, when when 2020 was happening, you know, back in March and the government started shutting down people's businesses, dude, I I had friends tell me that they they were weren't going to you know engage with me on on social media at all because my ideas were, quote unquote, dangerous because I <laughs> was encouraging people to question the trust, the science, trust the experts narrative that was being used to facilitate the government shutdowns of, of businesses. And now. You fast forward almost a year later, and now that the quote-unquote accepted science has been put out there by those scientists that they deem worthy of, of you know being looked at, that actually reaffirms everything that we were saying back in March. Now they're they're suspiciously silent, and and here's what we need to do, right? As as you know, folks in the Greater Liberty Movement, is we need to be entirely, unabashedly strong in our convictions and on our principles. When it's unpopular, because when you look at folks like Ron Paul, right, like why, why was Ron Paul catching so much electricity back in 2008 and then 2012? Because he was because, the only, he's, sorry to cut you off, but he was the only person well, making sense. Well, it, that and because he was addressing the number one concerns that were on America's mind at that time, which were number one, we had been at war for almost a decade. And number two. We were just going through one of the biggest uh, economic crashes we had seen since the Great Depression. So all of a sudden, you have this guy on stage who not only is identifying the problem that every single American was pretty much feeling across the board, but also was giving the proper solutions to those problems. And guess what? Him giving those those I, I guess really identifying those problems and giving those solutions did not make him popular with the GOP establishment. It did not make him popular with the Democratic Party establishment. As a matter of fact, it made him very unpopular, very unpopular to the point that those establishments made a, a point to go out of their way and try to corrupt and, and you know make it so he couldn't even get a chance to be the, the, the nominee in 2012. So right. here's the, the, the reality that libertarians need to face. They, nobody wants to be our friends in, in the, the left and right right now. They don't want to be our friends. They look at us as useful idiots in many cases. And in order to help get some you know idea or, or some certain little pet project passed, right, you know, uh, that's something that we need to, to realize is that at the end of the day, we need to convince the people who aren't in this, this game. It, we, while we want to be friends with the people who are currently playing the game and be able to play the game as it currently is played, if we want to change the game, we need to bring people into this entire movement that haven't been part of the political system in the past. And that requires us going out, talking to them where they're at, meeting with them where they're at, and that addressing really the fundamental issues that are really paramount to their individual communities, into their individual circumstances, their lives, so on and so forth. That's where we're actually going to have some long-lasting, meaningful relationships we're building with people. That Again, this is, this. I'll finish with this, right? When we are their trusted advisor, and this is what in sales you're always trying to do, you're trying to become the trusted advisor. So time and again, they will come back and ask you for help in different areas because right. they trust that you're going to have the right opinion or at the very least, you're going to put them in touch with the right people so that those people can help them along the way where they're experts in that field, right? And that's kind of what I realized when I was doing my show as I'm having people on who are experts in their different fields is like, I don't have to be the expert on everything. And and quite honestly, libertarians have to stop trying to be experts on everything. And instead, 
start trying to solve problems and direct people towards those who are already those experts. Let them be the experts in those fields. And, and then meanwhile, we can go out, build more libertarians, actually make you know some, some substantive changes along the way in policy. And then at the end of the day, when we look back, guess what, Brady? This is the end game. We're trying to make a freer society. And I think if we pull our heads out and we actually focus on making that the number one issue, we will uh, look back years from now and we will be pleasantly surprised with the progress we have made. But again, it requires us to take that first initial step first and uh, really take a hard look in the mirror. You're right. I, I actually want to expand on something you, you mentioned with Ron Paul and uh, you're talking about he was addressing issues that were important to uh, America at the time. And that's I believe that's half true. Um, I, I think we're going to have an even better opportunity to do that coming up in the next year or two, because in 28 and in 2012, in the, in the Ron Paul moment that he had, you know, he was an old man. I mean, he was 75 years old or so at the time. Um, something, I, I maybe, I'm right about that, right? Yeah, he was at least 75. In I, 20, I believe so. 2012. And, and look, I, I mean, I, I, I really like Ron Paul, but he, he's not the world's greatest orator. You know, he's not like, as my friend Jim Garrity would say, he's, he's not a, a whirling dervish of raw political charisma. Okay, <laughs> like he's not this like Barack Obama figure, this great speaker and everything. Ron Paul had young people obsessed with ending the Federal Reserve. <laughs> okay, he had right. young people who didn't know what the Fed was six months earlier, <laughs> chanting "End the Fed" at Ron Paul rallies. Okay, I think the left, the Democrats, are going to hand us like th- that's a hard sell, man. To one, tell somebody what the Federal Reserve is and convince them that they need to end it. Okay, that's a tough sell. The Democrats are going to hand us some easy sales here, I think, because. They believe, and the real danger that we're up against right now is from the political left, and it's because they are emboldened, and they believe that they have the kill shot. I mean, they really think that they can end the Republican Party and and just conservatism, libertarianism. I mean, the thing the thing is about the left is they don't view libertarians and conservatives any different. I mean, they just use the terms interchangeably on the left. I mean, they hate yeah. all of us equally. They want to destroy us equally. So, I mean, maybe that should spur on some. Uh, coalition building on our side, I think, <laughs> um, you know, enemy of my enemy kind of situation. But I, I think that it, it was a tough sell for Ron Paul to make that some 20 year old Republican college student should care deeply about ending the war in Afghanistan if they didn't know anybody that fought in the war in Afghanistan and ending the Federal Reserve if they didn't even know what the Federal Reserve was six months prior. The left is coming for the First Amendment. Right. Like I mean, <laughs> the left is they think they had the kill shot. They really think they can destroy us. They're coming for the First Amendment. I mean, you saw literally this morning. This is Tuesday, the, the 19th. This morning, both in The Washington Post and The New York Times, they both pr- published articles this morning saying that the state should force cable providers to deplatform Fox News and any other conservative outlets because, you know, orange, orange guy, you know, whatever. And, and they're coming for like they're coming for your kids, right? They they want to make it illegal or at least extraordinarily difficult to raise your kids the way you see fit. You know, it, it's very it's gonna be tough to convince a soccer mom that she should care deeply about ending the Federal Reserve, right? And Ron Paul was able to do that miraculously. You know what I mean? I think it's a lot easier sell convincing a soccer mom the importance of property rights and individualism when the state is coming after her children, right? Like I well, think. That's why- one, we got to survive, right? Like, we're playing defense. The left controls the culture. They control all the institutions. Yes. Hopefully, we survive this. But if we do survive this, and I think we will, uh, we're going to have a golden opportunity. At least I pray we, we survive to have a golden opportunity to explain the message of liberty to the masses. And I think the best way, obviously, like I said at the beginning, I think the best way to do that is by, uh, you know, taking over the GOP and, and, and you know, hitting them from that, from the right. But uh, I, I think... I mean, just looking at a guy like Ron Paul and, and just looking back on it, I know we both admire Ron Paul. Not the best speaker, not the most charismatic, not the mo- you know, not young by any stretch of the imagination. Like, I think if we can get some other leaders in there, uh, we're going to have a golden opportunity here, man. The left is going to yep. overstep their hand. They're going to overreach. They're going to do some extraordinarily evil things. <laughs> Even if they don't get to enact a lot of their evil stuff, they're at least going to be spewing their evil nonsensical jargon on TV every day for the next four years. We're going to have a golden opportunity here. If Ron Paul, an old man from Texas, who's not a great speaker, could get literally hundreds of thousands of young people chanting end the Fed, I think we're going to be set up here during a Biden administration to make a lot of inroads for liberty. 
So let's focus on the things then, right? That 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 people are are really fired up about, and that's what what Ron Paul and I was referring to. You know, what he was doing in 2008 and 2012, it worked in the time frame, right? The context yes. of the time frame, and then yes. that's why you know, if you're a libertarian in 20, 2021 and you're trying to win people over by telling them how bad the Fed is, well, you're right, but I'm sorry, that's not going to catch them by, you know, any surprise. Like, that's great. How does that help put food on my table right now? You can talk about monetary policy until you're blue in the face. But like, here, how about this? Let's talk about like, you know, ending lockdowns, right? Like, how about getting the government out of people's lives and and getting people to not be deemed essential versus non-essential? Like, that's where people right now are are entirely at. Like, people, instead of saying, hey, I want a $2,000 stimulus check. Say, hey, how about $2,000 less taken out of your paycheck every single month? Like a $2,000 payroll tax cut across the board for every single American that has a job. Like, do you not think that that would have a positive negative or a positive economic impact? And and these are things that we can we can start to sell people, right? Instead of, you know, the, the libertarian dogma. And again, it's it's knowing who you're talking to. We're not trying to, to sell on, on your traditional Republicans or traditional Democrats. We're trying to reach the people who are politically aware but otherwise have not really engaged. And that's when we're going to see the, the, the actual substantive change, right, when we get those people to start giving a shit. And once they start giving a shit and they actually start getting involved, that's when we're going to start to see some positive change in actually getting liberty policy into action. Yeah. No, I, I would 100 percent agree with you. I 100% agree, and I want to. I'm going to end the show in just a second on some way too soon punditry on where the GOP and the LP are going to go from here. Obviously, we're going to be wrong because, uh, I mean, it's January 2021. So <laughs> we're talking about where where each party's going to land in the next couple of years. I'm sure we're going to look like idiots for, uh, but we might as well put it on the record and let our fans make fun of us, right? But um, well, let's do that first. Let's do that first. Obviously, we know what we believe both the Libertarian Party and the GOP should head next, what what battles we're up against. Before we get to that, what do you think they will do? Just you're, put on your cynical hat, Brian. You've seen too much, as, as have I. If you, had to, if, you, if you were a betting man, I'm not saying what they should do. We're going to get to that in a second. But what will the GOP do next? What will the LP do next if we don't do something about it <laughs> on, on, on both fronts? Yeah, so here's here's the the GOP question. Um, right. I think GOP right now they're going to be facing um, going forward an identity crisis, right? Do they do they go the route of the the Trump MAGA route? Do they go the route back to like the Tea Party Rand Paul Mike Lee route, or do they go more towards this hybrid approach of you know a populist um, approach with this kind of weird like pseudo nationalist economic approach like a Josh Hawley or a Tucker Carlson. Um, I think you're going to see the the answer be a hybrid of the MAGA versus the, the Josh Hawley um, wing of the GOP. I think you're going to see more of that takeover. And then you're going to see for the LP, I think you're going to see more folks uh, in that, that, that Mises caucus uh, realm. I think I mean, they've been growing leaps and bounds right over the past year. And I think as we move towards 2022, that that number, I think they'll they'll probably get to the point where they'll take over like the, the leadership aspect of the party for messaging. And if that's the case, then I think the messaging will be able to attract those voters in the L or in the GOP, like the Ron Paul, Rand Paul, Thomas Massey types who maybe are going to be feeling uh, alienated. And looking for alternatives, assuming that they don't win that battle in the GOP. And if right. that's the case, then I would see the, the Libertarian Party moving forward much more in the realm of being truly like that Ron Paul kind of party versus the the Gary Johnson, Bill Weld party. I actually agree with everything you just said. Um, actually, I'm just going to run with that. I'm not even going to answer the rest of the question I was going to ask because I think this is important. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think you're right. Um, within the GOP, there's four factions. There's the establishment, which will always be there. Um, that's Mitch McConnell, you know, the, the DC establishment types. There's the populist, the Josh Hawley, um, Tucker Carlson, which I, I mean, they're essentially socialists who are also nationalists. I'm not yep. calling them Nazis. I'm not calling these guys Nazis. They're not Nazis. But when they're, they're guys, 
when guys when guys endorse Elizabeth Warren's economic plans, who are also super nationalists, that makes your boy kind of nervous. It makes me kind of yeah. nervous. Not, I'm not calling names. They're not Nazis. It just makes me uncomfortable. That's all I'm saying. So there's that faction, and then there's like the the, the conservatives, like the constitutional conservatives, Ben Sass, Ted Cruz, like these kind of guys. And then there's the libertarian ring, the the Ron Paul, Rand Paul, Thomas Massey, Mike Lee, all these guys. And I think. Well, I think Josh Hawley, who's I think probably the worst Republican politician in a long time. I mean, this guy is just the worst. But uh, um, don't blame me. I endorsed the other guy in the primaries, obviously. <laughs> obviously, our friend Austin Peterson. But um, I, I think he did pretty irreparable damage to his career uh, over the last couple of weeks. So I'm not as afraid of Josh Hawley as I, as I used to be. I, I was very terrified of the guy. He was really gaining a lot of traction in Republican circles, but I think a lot of people just can't stand him now. So good, <laughs> you know, good, yep. good, good riddance, bud. Go, uh, go do something else with your life. But I, I think even if the LP gains a ton of notoriety and membership and they, they can win, you know, local and, and even statewide elections or something, I just think if there isn't a powerful libertarian wing of the Republican Party, the liberty movement's over. I just don't, and I mean, who knows what's going to happen in 500 years, but I'm not going to be alive then. <laughs> I'm more concerned about like my lifetime, my children's lifetime. I don't have any kids yet, but my future children, good Lord willing, their lifetimes. Uh, like, I'm worried about like the foreseeable future. Yeah. And I just don't see it. I don't see liberty surviving if there isn't a thriving liberty movement within the GOP. And I know that makes a lot of libertarians listening to this cringe because they're like, what liberty movement in the GOP? It's like, dude, I get it. <laughs> like, I get it. I understand. A lot of these guys are not libertarians, but some of them are. And at least the ones that aren't, well, at least most of them, like you said, Marco Rubio. <laughs> My goodness, that's hilarious. But like, at least these guys, they feel the need to at least pay lip service to libertarianism. You know, yep. they have to pretend to be fiscally conservative. They have to pretend like they've read Hayek and Mises and, and, and Friedman and, and Rothbard and these guys. You know, if we lose that, like if the Josh Hollies, if the nationalist wing of the GOP actually does take over, and I don't think, I think Josh Hawley and his idiocy this month particularly has killed the chances of that happening. But if they do succeed, I I just don't, the LP just doesn't have the firepower. You know what I mean? Like they just don't have the, they don't have what it takes to, to really punch their weight in, in the political realm of the United States right now without some semblance of a semblance of a liberty movement within the GOP. So like we just have to hope the Rand Paul, Mike Lee, Thomas Massey faction of the GOP wins out because it's going to be a four way battle, man, uh, for the yeah. heart and soul of the GOP. And I, I could see the nationalists and the, the establishment guys kind of uh, building a coalition and the conservatives and the libertarians building a coalition. And we better hope our, our coalition wins out or man, we, Talk about an up. You think we have an uphill battle now? What What are we looking at if Mike Lee and, and Rand Paul and and Thomas Massey get primaried and lose their seats? You know what I mean? If If a Republican president can't call call up Rand Paul, get him out to the golf course to have him, you know, talk him out of the next war, right? Like I I think, uh, and I'm I'm glad that you agree. I I didn't actually expect that in the beginning of the podcast, but I I do think the liberty movement within the GOP is extraordinarily important. Maybe now more than ever. Yeah, it, it will, and this is again when we're looking at how do we actually you know get policy into action, right? right? There's a couple different ways you can you can go through the the political channels, which I, I would dare say is is not only you know necessary, but my God, if we don't play the game, then we're we're losing because that's what the other two teams are already doing. So that's option A. But also you know to speak to your eternal optimist, you know the, to quote the great Jurassic Park. The uh, market finds a way, and we we've seen time and again, <laughs> as we've seen state uh, overreach go into the different areas in the marketplace. God bless the market has has been able to adapt and in many cases overcome the hurdles that have been put in place by the government barriers. So while I'm I'm definitely weary of the the takeover of a American you know way of life from a very vapid left wing at the same point in time, our, our vastness in terms of our geographic uh, diversity and the, the fact that we have 50 very, not only just very different geographic states, but a very 50 different cultural states. 
I don't see this kind of uniform mentality of we're going to have this one takeover of a certain mentality being this, you know, really big boogeyman that it actually is. Is it real? Is it a thing that we need to be concerned about and constantly vigilant for? Yes. However, I don't see states like Kentucky or Indiana or, you know, Utah or Iowa jumping to, you know, enact these, you know, leftist policies right away. I think federalism is going to be the answer to a lot of our problems in embracing states saying no to federal policy and, and standing up for companies that are staying saying no to these federal overreaches. You know, we we need to start encouraging this, you know, the ultimate moving uh, with our, our ultimate vote, which is the move with your feet. Right. You know, people moving away from from city or from uh, states like California and New York and moving to more pro friendly states uh, for business and, and pro civil liberty states. And, and that's something that we need to encourage, support those companies, support, you know, support those um, you know, folks out there who, who are looking to do, you know, to do business in those states. And they're making a difference, hiring people in, in those states, like, you know, be the change that we want to see. That's ultimately how we, we will change the, the, the society, the culture, you know, love him or hate him. Ben Shapiro, he, he's entering into the cultural realm with his new movie he just had come out. This is how we are able to to make a difference. You know, Matt Kibbe at Free the People doing all the stories he does, having folks like Thomas Massey on talking about climate change, but through the lens of living off the grid and living a sustainable lifestyle. You know, I'm able to show that video to my leftist friends and they say, huh, who's this guy? And I say, this is one of the most libertarian members of Congress, Republican Thomas Massey. And they say, get the F out of here. And I say, yeah, how about that? Because once we're able to tell the stories and we show that we actually agree on a lot of the, the problems we see, and then we start to show the solutions that actually work. And when people realize that the solutions actually work, happen to be our ideas, well, my goodness, that's a, that's the best feeling in the whole wide world. I could not agree with you more, my brother. <laughs> Couldn't have said it better <laughs> myself. There's about 5,000 other things I really wanted to get to, but we are way over time already. And I know you got to go, so I will let you go. But first... Brian, my brother, I, one, uh, you got to come back on very soon so we can uh, finish Absolutely. the rest of the discussion. Obviously, we have a lot more to get to, but, you know, you know, we all have time restraints here. Brian, where can everybody uh, check out your show, The Brian Nichols Show, which is tremendous. I highly recommend it. Where can everybody check out uh, the We Are Libertarians Network uh, and what do you guys have going on over there? And where can everybody follow you online and keep in touch and all that good stuff? Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, thank you for, for having me on the program. And Anytime. Uh, I, I appreciate it, right? Because this, again, I, I know I started out with it, but this is how we're able to um, to actually move things forward. This is how we, we can make the change, and it requires us to to have these conversations. So at my show, uh, what we've been doing is we're having conversations about the issues people care about. Um, my goal is to leave my audience uh, leaving educated, enlightened, and informed. And And with that, I'm having on guests who they are infinitely smarter about the respective topics that they are experts on. And with that, I, I ask them the questions that I think genuinely my audience wants to, to hear the answers to. And sometimes that's the, the, the tough, awkward questions. Sometimes that will come across as the, the softball libertarian question. But more often than not, what my main goal is, is to figure out where we can be the problem solvers. So using these stories and to see how they're solving the problems that our societies are facing today and then having them as examples to say, hey, listen, we're not these crazy people who just talk about this stuff all day long in Facebook groups. We actually have people out there who are making real substantive differences in society right now, and here's their stories. That's what I'm trying to do is raise up these voices and show us how we can effectively sell liberty. So The Brian Nichols Show, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Um, if you enjoy the show, I would all I ask is you go over, give us a five-star rating and review, and just tell folks why you became a member of the show. Um, and I do every Friday. I'll, I'll go ahead and read uh, three ratings and reviews from uh, you know the, the reviews prior. So definitely appreciate um, you know all the support from the audience. And then over at We Are Libertarians, my goodness, man, we are we're growing um, as a network. You know, one thing that's happened over the past uh, year has been a big rebrand of the the network. So there no longer is the traditional We Are Libertarians podcast, but rather is the We Are Libertarians network featuring um, the Chris Spangle Show, which is the uh, the traditional podcast. Um, yours truly, the Brian Nichols Show, On the Run, Remzo Martinez, Freedom Strips, Keaton Tucker, 
Gingerarchy with Trisha Stewart, Boss Hog of Liberty um, with Jeremiah Morrill and Dakota Davis, and a slew of other great shows like Liberty Explained, Pathway to Libertarianism, Upwards, and so forth. A great um, network with a lot of great shows. And really, one of the things that we're looking to do as we continue to grow beyond just the We Are Libertarians network is, is working with the other libertarian podcasts out there, the conservatarian podcasts. You know, I was just over on Matt Kibbe's uh, The Blaze, uh, Kibbe on Liberty, his show talking about, you know, how we sell liberty, reaching an audience that I otherwise would never have reached. Um, and, you know, and, and that's how we're going to be able to build the future, man, is to be able to talk to people outside of our own comfort zones and actually you know, talk about the issues that matter to them. And once we talk about those issues, they're like, hey, these people care about us. And you know what? I always found that the best way to, to show somebody you care is to actually care. 100%, my brother. 100%. Everybody check out We Are Libertarians. Everybody check out the Brian Nichols show uh, wherever podcasts can be found. Everybody follow Brian on Twitter. He's great. That's all I got for today. I'm Brady Leonard. I'll be back on Monday. No gimmicks. Uh-huh.